Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, Zach Twomley here, and you're listening to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails, more specifically, episode 30 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. We are 30 episodes deep, and we're not even halfway through this incredible story. Remember, this is a listener-supported podcast, and nowhere is this more obvious than in the extreme amount of detail we're able to go into here. Any regular podcasts, which are not supported as well as this, would never have the time to look at the Paris Peace Conference in the detail that we're doing, unless, of course, they had several years to prepare and had very, very patient family and friends. I do have very patient family and friends, but because I'm also working in other aspects too, I don't have all that much time to prepare. So, because of that, I do rely on your guys' support. This podcast, which started nearly seven years ago, has grown from a hobby into a job, and because of you guys, this transformation has become possible. I have some amazing plans for this podcast in 2019, and I also have some interesting news about 
how Zach Twelmley's life is going. But I will spare you all the details as things develop. I will reveal the secrets then. So stay tuned for probably what will be a state of the podcast address at some time late in the spring. In any case, thanks so much for listening here. And you should, of course, know that the best way to support this podcast is simply by telling somebody about it. As I say, every flaming time that we start an episode. February is a very busy month for the Paris Peace Conference. and Consequently, it's a very busy month for us. There are several episodes, several chunky episodes to come as we cover some very detailed issues and debates and look at some very eventful days in the Council of Ten's life cycle. So I hope you're ready for that. But I should, of course, remind you as well that if you would like to support this podcast monetarily, Patreon.com is the best place to go to do that. By giving a small amount every single month, be that one, two, three, four, five, or six dollars, you will get something back in return. Currently, if you were to give one dollar a month, you'd actually have access to Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, a ten-part series looking at, well, Louis XIV's Arms and Armies in the late 17th century. So if Louis XIV and that era and those episodes are something you really enjoyed, then that should be right up your street. The $2 folks will, of course, get all the regular episodes ad-free, and they'll also get them delivered to them every single, well, I was going to say every single week, because it used to be the case that with the Korean War, you'd get them a week early. But because our episodes literally come out several times a week and are often on this day episodes, that's perk doesn't really apply, at least not for the moment. But you should of course know that in order to access the scripts for these shows, you can pay $2 a month and that perk shall be yours. For $5 a month, an hour of extra content will also be yours. And I realise that I have not released the 1956 episodes for January yet, and I have come up with a solution for that which basically involves me talking an awful lot into this microphone in a very short space of time. I'll release them very soon, along with the other two episodes for February, so I can clear my schedule somewhat and sort all you lovely $5 patrons, also known as history friends, sort you all out and keep you happy. 1956 is a great story. We are looking at the moment at the Suez Crisis, and things are really developing and people are scheming and people are intriguing. Several people have, in fact, signed up quite recently. Our Patreon is nearly at $1,600 a month, which is pretty incredible. I'm very, very happy with how this has all gone, and a big reason for the boost for Patreon is down to the delegation game. A game which, if you weren't aware, you can play for $6 a month. It involves you designing an avatar, sending that person's details my way, and participating in the very regular communications that are going down in the different Facebook chats. If that's not your thing, if you don't really like to intrigue or scheme all that much, you can simply send your avatar my way and let me know the various details that you can think of as the weeks transpire. If you're worried that it might be too late to join the delegation party, I wouldn't worry at all, because there is an awful lot you can still take part in. And even though the train has left the station, so to speak, and everyone's in Paris, things are more than fluid enough for you to have a very active role. I've already seen some people change their avatars, and I've already seen several people, in fact, meet a rather sticky end. And if you want to know more about that, listen to the latest episode of The Delegation Game. Of course, if you don't want to take part, you can still listen to the episodes, and you can see how this alternative version of history would transpire. But... As we keep on saying, if you'd rather not listen and you'd rather take part instead, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails 
or click on the link in the description below and you can make your mark on this alternative version of history with your alternative version of a delegate. Alrighty, a very large episode ahead of us and a very Polish episode indeed, so those Polish delegates taking part, you should enjoy this. Everyone else, I'm sure you'll enjoy it too. Thanks again for listening and let's have at it. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 30. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, delegates, all to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 30. Ah yes, Eastern Europe, the place where everyone hated everyone, where everyone wanted everyone's land, where nobody wanted to pay for it, and everyone hated everyone for it. When Diplomacy Fells has travelled throughout the centuries in Eastern Europe, and we have seen it through several different lenses. Who can forget the terrifying image of Crimean Tartar hordes pouring into the undefended border towns of the eastern wildlands as the citizens of the Commonwealth rushed to find their nearest walled settlement to wait out the raid? Or the unlikely tale of the King of Sweden who fought his way across Poland, Russia and Saxony only to see his army collapse in Ukraine? In the future, we will be looking at how Otto von Bismarck redefined the map of Europe in general by forging a German empire at the heart of the continent. We will also see how Poland's neighbours erased her from the map of Europe in 1795, ending in the process an era which had lasted a millennium and which characterised European relations as East versus West. The story of Poland's tumultuous journey through the 18th century is a story we're going to tackle in Poland is not yet lost, And as the name of this episode suggests, it's chock full of Polish themes indeed. By the 19th century, that geographical distinction of East versus West still existed of course, but the continent was unmistakably dominated by towering empires, 
and following the short blip which Napoleon's efforts as a redesign represented, East Central Europe sank into a status best described by its authors as prosperity and as its victims as oppression. Vienna, Berlin and St. Petersburg ensured that for a century their three-way agreement to keep all subject peoples down would be guaranteed to succeed. By 1914, it is hard to understate the fact that, in spite of the calamities in the Balkans, the troubles in Russia, or the periodic crises of the Habsburg monarchy, there was no figure in the world that could have predicted where everyone would be within fewer than five years. It took five years, indeed, from the moment of Franz Ferdinand's assassination to the instant when the German delegation signed at Versailles to change centuries of history. In that moment, an eruption which defies description took place. But we're going to do our best of course, to describe it. It's time we examined this change in the detail it deserves, so without any further ado, I will now take you all to post-war Poland. The departure of the Russians, Germans and Habsburgs opened up not merely doors of opportunity, but also old wounds, long buried in history, and old claims buried even deeper in national memory, which could be used to legitimise land grabs or the proclamation of grandiose entitlements. The result, perhaps unsurprisingly, was violence. After all, violence was all these people had known for over four years. It was the vehicle that had transported change, and upon its tracks travel the opportunities which could only be dreamed of. The old empires had acted like artificial dams on the swollen torrents of national feeling and passion, which were soon to flow freely and often straight into each other, with the result that suddenly it seemed as though all of Eastern Europe was in arms and in flames. If you thought that that was a liberal use of metaphors and similes, then you should enjoy listening to the account given by David Lloyd George in his 1938 book, The Truth About the Peace Treaties. It is there that Lloyd George summarises the fearsome impression which Eastern Europe had already made upon the peacemakers at Paris by the final week of January 1919. We have seen before that the Council of Ten issued warnings to those Eastern Europeans who might be tempted to seize the moment by attacking and invading their neighbours. Such acts, it was warned, would be considered illegitimate and would count against them when they tried to make their case. Since this is the episode when we examine that case being made, or at least the background of that case coming into view, we should take the time to listen to Lloyd George's views on that turbulent region. The British Prime Minister wrote, Whilst the delegates of the great powers were occupied with deciding the outlines of the peace treaty with Germany, Their deliberations were constantly interrupted by reports of armed conflict in every corner of the vast battle area of the war, from the Pacific shores to the Black Sea and the Baltic, from the frozen rivers of Siberia to the sunny shores of the Adriatic. There were scores of little wars going on, some conducted with a savagery which looked as if man had reverted to the type of barbarian he was in the ferocious days of Tamerlane and Attila. What happened in the ruthless struggle between red and white in Siberia, in southern Russia and in the Ukraine is too ghastly to perpetuate in the memory of man. It is an agony to dwell upon the details of horror enacted in these orgies of hate. Hell was let loose and made the most of its time. But these little wars came nearer to us than Russia. The emancipated races of southern Europe were at each other's throats in their avidity to secure choice bits of the carcasses of dead empires. Pole and Czech were fighting over Techen. The Poles and the Ukrainians had both pounced on Galicia, while Romanians and Serbs 
were tearing up Hungary and Austria. Poles and Lithuanians had their fangs on the same cities and forests. Where races were mixed near frontiers, the snarling and clawing were deafening. The Congress could not get on with its work for the uproar. These areas were the mangrove swamps where the racial roots were so tangled and intermingled that no peacemakers could move inside them without stumbling. The resurrected nations rose from their graves, hungry and ravening from their long fast in the vaults of oppression. They clutched at anything that lay within reach of their hands, not even waiting to throw off the cerements of the grave and array themselves in the apparel of living nations. With the old empires by the wayside, for the first time in the history of mankind, there existed an opportunity for the downtrodden and maligned, the weak and the ignored, the ambitious and the resentful, all to stake their claims and make their cases. The delegations of these various powers, the Poles, Czechs, Slovaks, Yugoslavs, Romanians, etc., all made their way to Paris and finally received the audience they had been waiting for after so many months of waiting. Once they arrived, they found the Big Five, or... Was it the big three? Italy didn't seem very interested except for when the Serbs made a claim, and Japan didn't really talk at all. These four powers could and did make claims for being on the Allied side in the war, even though all were in possession of populations that had fought on both sides. That did not necessarily matter to Woodrow Wilson, David Lloyd George or George Clemenceau. What mattered was what happened next, and where these small nation-states would fit into the jigsaw puzzle of Europe they were crafting. This wasn't a conversation which everyone wanted to have. Preconceived biases had already been brought to the surface. France wanted to guarantee that a cordon sanitaire of strong ethnic Eastern European states would block the spread of Bolshevism and menace Germany's eastern flank. David Lloyd George held a strong contempt for the Poles. The Italians didn't want Yugoslavia to emerge as a power in the Balkans because Rome had expected to take this region romantically imagined in the old imperial Rome style as Illyria, into its sphere of influence. Woodrow Wilson, on the other hand, was both perplexed by the kaleidoscope of issues and excited by what was possible if it all was worked out. The discussion regarding Eastern Europe promised to be, much like that which had dealt with mandates only a few days before, fantastically messy and, of course, badly planned out, but we're going to do our best to deal with these events nonetheless. It was in the first week of February that attentions were turned with the most determination towards Eastern Europe, and it was up to those deputations from that wild and mysterious part of the world to make the most of this attention while they could. Much of their work, as we will see, revolved around getting the blessing from the Supreme Council for moves and land grabs which they had already made. Others were perhaps feeling a bit bashful, knowing full well that the warnings issued in previous days to cease in the seizing of neighbouring lands and peoples had largely been ignored. Others still had refrained from taking all they wanted and hoped to find a favourable ear among the more important Allied leaders to get their message across. All the while, of course, it was in the Supreme Council or Council of Ten that this lobbying and politicking mostly took place and consequently we can rely on the minutes for the structure of this episode as well as some of the minor details. Originally, the plan was to divide this episode in two, with the Poles and Czechs in part one, and Romania and Yugoslavia in part two. After taking far too much time investigating Poland, though, and coming to the conclusion that this story is far too good to ignore, I decided to rearrange the deck a bit, and dedicate a whole episode to Poland here, and leave the other three states until part two instead. 
Therefore, our first task today is to deal with the question of Poland, by far the most dominant of all the Eastern questions, and, if you ask David Lloyd George, certainly the most annoying. If that all sounds good, let's sink our teeth back into this nationality pie which was Eastern Europe. Poland was evidently a pressing case for the Big Four. It was deemed important enough for them to interrupt their previous discussions on the mandate system and to devote a whole day to discussing the departing Polish Commission, which was meant to report back to the Allied Conference on the 29th of January 1919. That will come under our microscope, but in addition to Poland to the country, I want to examine as well that country's heavy hitters, men like Ignacy Paderewski, a Polish expat and American citizen who was already world famous for the magic he could perform on the piano before he ever set his mind to politics. Paderewski can be considered the more middle-of-the-road candidate who worked tirelessly abroad in speaking engagements to promote Polish independence, speaking seven languages fluently and receiving hundreds of thousands of love letters from adoring fans who were spellbound by his unique playing style and striking appearance. Paderewski, unfortunately, seems to have lacked the political acumen. No, actually, it would be fairer to say that he lacked the political ambition to lead his country into the 1920s. This left the door open for two other men, one on the right and one on the left, and neither, unsurprisingly, being able to stand the other. For the record, Paderewski is represented in our delegation game, and he has a chance in that game to right the wrongs that his character suffered in real life. But back to the other two candidates. First, there was Roman Domowski, the proponent of a Poland for the Poles idea, who established the right-wing National Democratic Party. Reasonably accused of anti-Semitism, or formulating plans to expel all non-Poles and even non-Catholics from the rump region of Congress Poland to make way for a homogenous Polish national state, Domowski was predictably unpalatable to many, including his own compatriots, as he advocated partnership with Russia. Viewing Russia as the lesser of two cultural enemies, Domowski scorned partnership with the Germans, viewing their culture as stronger than the Russian equivalent and then a greater threat to Polish identity. Further wrinkles in his character can be found in the fact that Domowski deplored violence, and he urged his compatriots to pursue political means of expression for their creed. In the debate over what shape a Polish state would take in the years before the war, Domowski feuded endlessly with his peers, eventually losing his position within the National Democratic Party to a Jew, which he took as a personal insult. Domowski believed increasingly in pan-Slavism, and at the same time believed that Polish culture and history was strong enough to enable Poland to play a dominant role in whatever cooperation between the Slavs might produce. His peers remained sceptical, but Domowski pledged the support of his followers to the Tsar at the outbreak of the war, and in 1917 he established the Polish National Committee, which would in time be recognised as the official government of Poland by the Western Allies. A task made much easier once the Russians collapsed and the risk of offending one's allies diminished. During the early years of the 20th century, Domowski was not only quarrelling with his colleagues, but also with his political rivals. Those on the opposite end of the political spectrum, to the left, followed the lead of Josef Pilsudski. But it wasn't merely in political outlook that Pilsudski differed from Domowski. In virtually every respect, from their ethnicity to their family history to their chosen allies to their imagined future path for Poland, 
the two men could not have been more different. The man who would later rule as Poland's de facto military dictator during the interwar years was born in Lithuania to a traditional Polish-Lithuanian family. Pilsudski's early life reads like a series of trials and tribulations. Arrested by the Russian police here, transported to that Siberian camp, escaped by feigning this illness, roused that underground grouping, you name it, Pilsudski had done it all. He was also unique in that he was an avowed socialist, founding the Polish Socialist Party, but he also subscribed passionately to Polish nationalism and patriotism after having been fed and watered and an idealised diet of Polish customs and history by his mother. Pilsudski's upbringing created within him a fierce hatred for the Russians, so whereas Domowski sided with the Russians as the lesser of two evils, Pilsudski sided with the Germans and consequently the Central Powers during the war. Furthermore, Pilsudski's upbringing had the additional effect of inculcating within him a romantic idea of what the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had been all about. Poland's future, Pilsudski believed, lay in a recreation of the Commonwealth, or what became known as the Intermarium, between seas, plan, whereby effectively all of East-Central Europe would be gathered together in a federation under Polish domination, just like it had been in the good old days. In addition, as if he wasn't different enough to Domowski already, Pilsudski promoted violent rebellion as the best way to free Poland from its chains. His father had taken part in the doomed 1863 uprising, and during the Russo-Japanese War, Pilsudski could even be seen courting the Japanese, with the aim of launching a rising against Russian rule, while St. Petersburg buckled during that war. Clearly, the persons of Pilsudski and Domowski offered very different flavours of Polish independence. None of these men were fortunate enough to get all of what they wanted either. In the end, Domowski failed to gain any significant political position in interwar Poland, whereas Pilsudski dominated, even though Pilsudski had used Domowski's organisation, the Polish National Committee, as a vehicle to gain some legitimacy for his rule early on, becoming the Chief of State or President from 1919. In spite of his socialist proclivities, Pilsudski watched during the interwar years as Poland swung further to the right, and even in his position of power, there was little he could do about this trend. Pilsudski would die in 1935, Domowski would follow him in 1939. Neither man managed to completely fulfil the vision they had set out to achieve, and while Domowski never attained real political power, he would remain a thorn in Pilsudski's side. The two Polands which these two men were fighting for barely existed in the consciousness of the world powers though, and the man most responsible for propelling Poland to the forefront of the Allies' hearts and minds was unquestionably the man who had the least amount of political impact upon the country once the Treaty of Versailles was signed. He was that famed pianist we mentioned near the beginning, Ignacki Paderewski. Paderewski, Pilsudski and Domowski were three very different men, who knew they would have to cooperate if Poland was ever going to have a chance. Their plan was relatively simple. During their first meeting together in Warsaw in late 1918, Paderewski and Pilsudski could feel the tension in the room, as both needed the other for legitimacy and for power's sake. Paderewski had considerable fame and influence over the Polish National Committee, originally Domowski's grouping. If Pilsudski was to overcome Domowski's loathing of him, and harness the Polish National Committee to improve his position, an endorsement from Paderewski, who was beloved by Poles and non-Poles alike, wherever he went, I mean, just look at that moustache for crying out loud, 
he would work wonders. Interestingly, Paderewski had not focused simply on home affairs. His life as a travelling musician throughout the world afforded him a unique opportunity to check in with perhaps the most reputable fan of small countries achieving their independence that existed in the world, the American president, Woodrow Wilson. The newly established Mrs. Wilson had a keen and observant mind and would often be in a position to watch as history unfolded before her eyes. Thankfully, she released her memoirs in the late 1930s, providing in the process innumerable character sketches which the more reserved Woodrow Wilson would never have produced himself. On one occasion in early 1917, she happened to be present for the meeting between Paderewski and her husband, the President of the United States. Edith Wilson recalled that, As he, Paderewski, stood pleading the cause of his country, she saw within his eyes, all the suffering and degradation of his countrymen, and found herself identifying with his cause, that cause being Polish independence. Mrs. Wilson wrote that she always cherished the memory to have seen together these two men who were making the world better and happier. Others seemed to agree. A few agonising days after making this impression upon Mrs. Wilson, Mr. Wilson presented his Peace Without Victory speech, wherein, among other items of note, he urged the world to find a way to reconstitute an independent Poland and Europe. Before writing that speech, he had written to a friend regarding the impression which Paderewski's patriotic speeches had made upon him, saying, I wish you could have heard Paderewski's speeches for his country. He touched chords more sublime than when he moved thousands as he commanded harmony from the piano. Paderewski, for his part, vowed never to play piano again until Poland was free, which was convenient because he was so busy he barely had time for anything other than politics and constant lobbying. The agreement eventually reached by the three influential Poles boiled down to a compromise. Paderewski would serve as a joint delegate of Poland alongside Domowski. Pilsudski would remain mostly in Poland and command its armed forces, in addition to serving as its head of state. Paderewski was tasked with harnessing his broad appeal and popularity by heading a coalition government and taking his mandate to Paris. All three men now had a job to do, and while they all dreaded being together in the same room, it was a relationship which could work so long as Paderewski was there to smooth over the cracks and present as appealing a picture of Poland as possible. This was all to come in early 1917, and further to our point earlier about Paderewski's meeting with Woodrow Wilson in that year, it's worth drawing attention to another perceived coup of that famed pianists, that being his persuasion of Wilson to include Poland in the Peace Without Victory speech. Wilson actually used Poland to make a point about what he wanted from the world, and the substance of this speech is therefore worth quoting. Wilson said, No peace can last, or ought to last, which does not recognise and accept the principle that governments derive all their just powers from the consent of the governed, and that no right anywhere exists to hand peoples about from sovereignty to sovereignty as if they were property. I take it for granted, for instance, if I may venture upon a single example, that statesmen everywhere are agreed that there should be a united, independent and autonomous Poland, and that henceforth, inviolable security of life, of worship, and of industrial and social development should be guaranteed to all peoples who have lived hitherto under the power of governments devoted to a faith and purpose hostile to their own. Of course, Wilson's proclamation that statesmen everywhere are agreed that there should be an independent Poland was somewhat premature. One historian has written on this that Wilson was too optimistic in declaring that statesmen everywhere were already in agreement on that point. 
not only those of the Central Powers, as well as those of Russia, had an entirely different position, but even distinguished British statesmen like Arthur Balfour, discussing the problems with Colonel House in April 1917, after the First Russian Revolution and the qualified recognition of Poland's right to independence by the provisional Russian government, objected to a Polish state cutting off Russia from Germany, because, in his opinion, it would prevent the former from coming to the aid of France in case of another German aggression. By late 1917, Pilsudski and Domowski had abandoned their initial sponsors or been arrested by them, and Paderewski continued to drum up support for Poland through speaking tours and lobbying among the Allies, establishing a Polish relief organisation in the process. It certainly helped Poland's case that the next time Wilson referred to it, America was at war with Germany, Russia had collapsed, and the future of Eastern Europe, including Poland, appeared to be in flux. The 13th of Wilson's 14 points famously delineated Poland as existing in a post-war Europe. Yet the oft-forgotten aspect of the point was how limiting it was, declaring that only undisputably Polish portions of the map should form part of the new Polish state which was being created, not recreated, by the way, a slight which Poles cognitive of their history took badly. The historian M.B. Biskupski has noted that Wilson had a surprising passion for preserving the Russian Empire in early 1918, before it descended into Bolshevism, and that the Poles were the only ones compelled to provide proof of the inherent Polishness of certain regions. If in parts of the Ukraine, for instance, Poles could not prove the region's Polishness, then those regions would not revert to an independent Ukraine, which Wilson had no interest in creating. Well, he didn't actually care for creating independent Baltic states either. Instead, this region would simply be handed to Russia, as though by default. It should be added that throughout the Paris Peace Conference, whether dealing with Paderewski, Pilsudski or Domowski, the American delegation was not anti-Polish. It would be more accurate to say that it was pro-Russian. And then, when more information emerged, it simply became disinterested in crafting a Polish state, in spite of Wilson's apparently plain passion for that mission. It should be added that this is merely the interpretation of Piskupski, whereas another by his Polish historical peer, O. Halecki, made the very valid and revealing point that Nothing is more misleading than the opinion expressed in various studies on the peace negotiations in 1919 that there was in Paris certainly a tendency of benevolence towards Poland and a definite growing inclination favouring Poland, which frequently is being contrasted with the hostility against both Germany and Russia. It is true that thanks to Wilson's 13 point, Poland's right to independence was no longer questioned, but the interpretation of that same point raised endless controversies in which at least the British delegation was opposed to Poland in all main questions, so that British historians of the Peace Conference have no easy task when they try to explain that attitude. To locate the source of Britain's anti-Polish sentiment, we need look no further than its Prime Minister David Lloyd George. Lloyd George was of the opinion from the offset that Poland's contentious claims on portions of German, Ukrainian, Russian and Baltic land were a recipe for conflict, and in his memoirs he poured boiling water on the Poles at every opportunity, seeing them as disturbers of the peace, unscrupulous expansionists and reckless bandits in equal measure, all the while underrating the genuine contributions on both sides which the Poles had made to the war. In one particularly acidic diatribe, Lloyd George remarked, 
Some nations had contributed their best to the victory and meant to be recompensed for their sacrifices. Some who had contributed little, or who had fought almost to the end on either side, were just as clamorous for a share of the spoil of a victory which they had not helped to achieve. No one gave more trouble than the Poles. Having once upon a time been the great, formidable power of Eastern Central Europe, when Prussia was a starveling duchy, there were few provinces in an area inhabited by a variety of races that Poland could not claim as being historically her inheritance of which she had been left. Drunk with the new wine of liberty supplied to her by the Allies, she fancied herself once more the resistless mistress of Central Europe. Self-determination did not suit her ambitions, so the right of all peoples to select their nationhood was promptly thrown over by her leaders. They claimed that these various races belonged to the Poles through the conquering arm of their ancestors. Like the old Norman baron who, when he was asked for the title to his lands, unsheathed his sword, Poland flourished the sword of her warrior kings, which had rusted in their tombs for centuries. Lloyd George went on to detail then the strategic dilemma of Poland in early 1919. She had to deal in the east with the Bolshevik threat, a reforming Baltic and a developing Ukraine, and in the west, Germany still loomed large. If Germany determined to attack Poland, then all would be lost, and she would be squeezed in the middle. However, with Germany under the socialist Friedrich Ebert, it was believed that a socialist Poland would help maintain peace. Lloyd George then revealed something of what was really on his mind when he added briefly that The Pole, who was the Irishman of continental Europe, is like him a good politician. Both are highly gifted races, both temperamentally highly geared. I for one am honoured to see Ireland compared to the Poles, and Lloyd George may well have been ignorant of the legitimate parallels between the two. Both, in 1919, had been ruled consistently for decades by their larger, more powerful neighbours, and both, by 1919, were causing the British Prime Minister a multitude of headaches. Discussions on Poland had already taken up a great deal of time, even before all sat down on the 29th of January to determine the mission and durability of the Polish Commission, which the Supreme Council had decided to send to Danzig, or Gdansk. Lloyd George would claim that the French were pro-Pole due to their eastern security arrangements, and that Woodrow Wilson had arrived in Europe thinking as a pro-Pole, which left Lloyd George on his own when it came to voting. This, as we have seen, was something of a lie. Woodrow Wilson was not as enthusiastically anything when it came to Poland as Lloyd George claimed. The best way to describe Woodrow Wilson's attitude towards Poland is that he felt a bit more intensely than meh, but only because he believed Poland might be useful as an example of a new world order which he was trying to create. Wilson wanted to use Poland as the blueprint for his new vision, to capitalise on the popularity of Paderewski in the United States and abroad, and almost certainly to harness the votes of Polish Americans. Yet he was distinctly disinterested when it came to giving the Poles what they actually wanted. In fact, more often than not, Wilson followed Lloyd George's lead when dealing with the Poles, and it was Clemenceau who had to back down. France, not the Americans, were the true friends of the Poles. And even then, only because of Georges Clemenceau's strategic interests, which dictated a strong Poland, was the best thing for French security. Lloyd George paints Paderewski as the brilliantly gifted and patriotic Pole who forced Woodrow Wilson to turn his attention to the Polish cause and converted him into a Polonophile in the process. Yet in doing so, Lloyd George overrates Paderewski's influence. Though Paderewski was unquestionably a vital character in promoting the Polish cause to Wilson through 1917 and 18, he had little actual power. 
Though he served as Premier for effectively the first three quarters of 1919, Paderewski was never in a position to wrest from the Allies any firm commitments to come to Poland's aid, especially once the Bolsheviks really did attack in force, and it appeared as though Poland might disappear again. That this genuine threat did exist to Poland's existence, and that it manifested itself only a couple of months after the Treaty of Versailles was signed, speaks volumes about the palpable danger which Poland was in, and Paderewski knew it. It was for this reason that he urged, alongside his Polish peers at Paris, for the Allies to send the existing Polish divisions back into Poland to defend its lands. In his memoirs, Lloyd George wrote on this issue that, On the plea, which was not altogether a pretext, that the Poles were afraid of Bolshevik invasions with German connivance, the French military urged the Allies to send arms and ammunition to Poland through Danzig. They also recommended that the divisions of the Polish Legion, formed out of the Polish prisoners captured in the war, should be sent to Poland immediately to enable helpless Poland to resist the double menace to her young life. The Supreme Council ascended to these expedients. It was true that the Supreme Council approved of these expedients, yet it was also true that the Poles were soon faced with the realisation of the Bolshevik threat as it cut relentlessly towards their capital. It was true as well that the Poles were only justifiably entitled to have their own soldiers back on their own land, no matter what Lloyd George might fear they would do with them. Furthermore, it was all a bit rich for Lloyd George to make the approval of this manoeuvre, effectively to save Poland from its neighbours, sound like a French or Polish or American scheme. But Lloyd George, according to the minutes of the meetings of the 29th of January, didn't actually voice any disapproval for the Polish policy at the time, and he was only present for the afternoon meeting after everything had already been decided. Lloyd George's presentation of events is thus not altogether fair. For sure, certain Poles did step outside the realm of legality during this arduous process of getting their state together and defending its borders from attackers or rival claimants. But so did virtually all the other actors in the region. Why not pour scorn on the Hungarians or Romanians or Serbs? Lloyd George's behaviour here is frustrating because it clouds the reality and makes it appear as though one Polish voice represented the country, when in reality, Roman Domowski was its right-wing voice, Joseph Pilsudski its left-wing voice, and Ignacki Paderewski its cultural popular voice. These three voices could hardly be coherent at all times, and they certainly were not, but Lloyd George fails to mention this. He also fails to give adequate attention or respect to the genuine, historically rooted Polish fears, or the impact which being surrounded by those that gobbled up your homeland a century before, might have on one's psyche. Lloyd George's underestimation of the fears of the other delegations were repeated with Clemenceau, as we will see, but he also badly misrepresented the scale of sympathy for Poland at the conference on top of everything else that he did. It may appear unnecessary to go into this detail on Lloyd George's presentation of history. He was a politician's act. Of course he would put his own spin on things. Yet, getting the Polish element right is an important mission for me, and it should be for all historians worth their salt, because it has been gotten wrong so many times before. The biggest loser, if Poland got her way, was Germany, and to Lloyd George, desirous of not punishing the Germans too harshly once it became abundantly clear that this could lead nowhere good, opposed poking the Germans any more by taking any more of their land. 
Now I know you've been confronted with a lot in this episode already, but this adds to the revisionist take on the conference which says that men like Lloyd George, after some initial jingoism, determined to treat Germany as gently as he could get away with, for the sake of avoiding conflict in the future or engendering resentment, finding Clemenceau opposed to his limited scope of punishment, and finding his economic advisor Keynes critical that Lloyd George was still being too harsh, Prime Minister made what he believed was the best of a bad situation. Yet, in doing so, in crafting this halfway home of punishment and prize, Lloyd George could not afford to let anyone get in his way, least of all the Poles. This resulted in his turning the powers of his considerable talents against the Polish cause, with unfortunate results. He endeavoured to damage Poland's cause not just through diplomatic means, but also through Simple slander. As the Prime Minister declared later in the spring of 1919, Poland has won her freedom, not by her own exertions, but by the blood of others. And not only has she not gratitude, but she says she loses faith in the people who won her freedom. Lloyd George was wrong on this count, of course. Poland as a country may not have participated in the Great War, but as a people, the Poles lost at least 450,000 during its furies with a further 900,000 wounded, as Poles fought in as many as six different armies, the Italian, French, Russian, Habsburg, German, and American. If we were to judge nationhood solely on Lloyd George's gory criteria alone, then surely this was enough blood spilled to deserve a state. As Lloyd George knew all too well, of course, blood alone did not entitle a state to anything. Otherwise, Germany, Russia, or France would be entitled to the world. What mattered was that Poland's claims were contentious, and she heard this loud and clear on the 29th of January, when Poland was called to explain the situation in its country to the Supreme Council. We touched on this earlier, noting that despite the fact Lloyd George wasn't present for the earlier, more important meeting, he still had strongly negative opinions on it, apparently not strong enough for him to actually attend. In the second meeting, though, conducted in the afternoon, the Czechs were present, laying down their case for the gains in Silesia, specifically in the town of Tetchen, which was proving the most contentious issue of all. In a classic case of Slav said, Slav said, the Poles claimed that they were entitled to Tetchen, an important railway hub and coal mining centre based on population. The Czechs claimed they were entitled to it and that the population disparity said so on their maps. The unscrupulous Poles, said Edward Benesch, the Czech president, had invaded Tetchen and seized it because they knew it was not theirs by right of demographic statistics. Not so, said the Poles. They had intervened in Tetchen because they had been provoked by the Czech militia there, who had fired on Polish citizens. Roman Domowski was tasked with presenting the Polish case, and he didn't do a tremendous job, to be honest. Domowski claimed a vast swathe of East German land, reasoning that it had been Germanized and that the old Polish population had been forcibly removed. This wrong now had to be righted. Writing this wrong in its turn created a wrong of its own, that infamous border adjustment known as the Polish Corridor, and the moment when something of a ticking clock of anger was wound up in the German psyche. As the historian Darwin Bostwick noted, No aspect of the Versailles Treaty did more to alienate the Germans' public opinion and to embitter European international relations after 1919 than the German-Polish boundary settlement. Nor was any major treaty provision less susceptible to peaceful change, either by negotiation or unilateral action, as Hitler proved later, 
than the Polish boundary settlement. Domowski's case was effectively the creation of this boundary problem, and he would later confess the damaging effect it had on German revanchism and his own lack of foresight in helping to craft it. Honest though he was, in any case, once Domowski had made his case a century ago this week, the can was kicked down the road until it landed in the arms of a new body, created especially to help solve these troubling Polish questions when no one else would. This body's name was the Polish Commission, and it was comprised of allied delegates in addition to some high-profile Polish nationalists and distinguished figures, so when this commission finally presented their case to the victorious powers at Versailles in early March 1919, Lloyd George was bound to have disliked what he saw, had he been there to see it. Their discussions would have granted Gdansk, historically one of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth's most important port cities, back to the new Polish Republic as part of this corridor which would cut between Brandenburg and East Prussia. But to Lloyd George it was unacceptable that the Poles should want to turn back the clock to before the times of the partitions in the 18th century. Lloyd George noted in a memorandum in late March 1919 that The proposal of the Polish Commission that we should place 2.1 million Germans under the control of a people which is of a different religion and which has never proved its capacity for stable self-government throughout its history must, in my judgment, lead sooner or later to a new war in the east of Europe. While Lloyd George complained, the Polish Commission accepted that they had been given an impossible task. According to their mission, They were to formulate an arrangement which granted Poland access to the sea, but also to keep the ethnic statistics of the region firmly in focus. The jumbled mess which Eastern Europe represented was the byproduct of centuries of mingling and cross-border pollination and intermarriage of dozens of ethnic and national groups. Everyone from Jews to Ukrainians could be found in the land, which would eventually be deemed the Polish corridor. With Germans and Poles, depending on whom you asked, making the majority or most significant minority. The point was that it would be almost impossible to please everyone, and the Polish Commission knew it. As spring progressed, the Allies in their Supreme Council, and then as the Big Four, would issue protests, deliberately cutting off food to Poland, and would then send delegations and military attaches to Poland to calm the situation down and get a sit rep. Among those military experts which the French sent was a dashing young colonel by the name of Charles de Gaulle. It deserves mention that the ethnic sprawl of so many peoples, east, west, north and south, was a natural part of the history of Europe. It was something that was just accepted as the way things were, and that was why it was so hard to suddenly draw up these borders everywhere. Empires had not been perfect by any stretch, but they had at least let people move around and do what they wanted, and now everyone was left with the result of that. It was only in the years that followed, especially after the Second World War, that the association of homogenous states with stability became the norm, and multi-ethnic states, or states with a history of ethnic violence, were looked down upon. Thus, Stalin ordered the displacement of millions of Germans from Poland, not because he was cruel, though of course he was, He did it because he believed it would solve the problem of contention which had defined the region since the old empires had collapsed with horrific consequences during the Second World War. The point is that these problems were legion and an obvious solution was not present. 
The cynic could claim that it would have been better to please the Germans and ignore the Poles, handing the new Weimar Republic Danzig, ignoring the corridor idea, and dealing with the Poles if they got restless. There was hardly a danger after all of the Poles launching World War II, whereas German revanchism remained the boogeyman for several years hereafter, and with good reason as it transpired. Again though, the notion that Hitler would not have launched a second world war had Danzig been in his hands all along is bogus, and it doesn't fit with Hitler's character. We should emphasise that as soon as Hitler got to power, another war was inevitable, and Hitler would have found any pretext he needed to launch it. The fumbling with the ball in the Polish corridor made it easier for him, considering the sheer challenge which the whole fiasco represented, it is difficult to imagine any solution which did not leave someone very unhappy indeed. Domovsky, for one, was outraged, calling Lloyd George the agent of the Jews, but not to his face, of course, for resisting what Domovsky interpreted as Poland's rights. By early April 1919, Lloyd George would have persuaded Woodrow Wilson, and then Georges Clemenceau, to accept that Danzig would be a free city under League of Nations control. He had also fought for plebiscites in the Corridor region, which placed several important railways under German control and heightened the tensions between the unwilling neighbours still further. My conclusion, Lloyd George had said, is that we must not create a Poland alienated from the time of its birth by an unforgettable quarrel from its most civilised neighbour. Now that argument, and the aim within it, was fair, but Lloyd George must have known that as soon as the land was taken from the Germans, regardless of its ethnic makeup, there were bound to be dissatisfied Germans eager to regain what had been lost. Clemenceau had, for the longest time, defended Polish interests, largely because he wanted Poland to be as strong as possible, but also because he seems to have had a genuine sympathy for their plight. We remember the children whipped for having prayed to God in Polish, peasants expropriated, driven from their lands to make room for the occupants of the German race, he recalled. In short, Clemenceau said, let the Germans be offended. They were on the losing side and had more than enough to answer for following centuries of rule over Poland. Notwithstanding the Allied blundering in Poland, on this day a hundred years ago, Edward House was able to record in his diary an even more self-indulgent piece than usual, saying, One of the most satisfactory features of the day was a letter from Prime Minister Ignacy Paderewski of Poland. He says, you have been the first to recognise Poland's new government, as you have been the first to revive her hopes when she was in despair. My country is blessing your name, and the government is sending you this message of sincere affection and profound gratitude. Paderewski's first speech after being made Prime Minister, he said that the best friend Poland ever had was Colonel House, and that the Poles should heap blessings upon my head. Further than that, he hoped that the first statue to be erected in the new Poland would be a statue to Colonel House. The statue never came, but House was at least correct to underline the importance which America held in Polish aspirations. The weather vane in the Polish deliberations proved to be Woodrow Wilson, and Lloyd George got his claws in early and successfully, exposing in the process the rarely appreciated fact that Wilson wasn't nearly as staunchly pro-Pole, or even all that interested in the Poles, as is sometimes assumed. This is not to say that either man was entirely ignorant, or that Lloyd George was thoroughly, unrelentlessly anti-Pole, though. The President and Prime Minister's major concerns 
were that the Poles demanded too much of the Paris Peace Conference and that these demands would upset European stability. As Margaret Macmillan put it, It was true, as the Poles charged, that Lloyd George was preoccupied with getting the German treaty signed. This was not unreasonable. It was also true that Lloyd George had little faith that Poland would survive. This was also not unreasonable. Lloyd George continued to work for German interests, though, not just in the corridor issue, but also in the contentious Silesian region, which was a major producer of coal. The region was, in the end, partitioned several ways, even though Poles could argue that according to the most up-to-date figures, it was 65% ethnically Polish. Lloyd George skirted around the demographic issue by focusing on the material. The Poles didn't need more coal-producing regions, whereas the Germans did. Otherwise, the Germans might not be able to pay the indemnity. It wasn't until the end of 1919 that the Curzon Line was drawn, which supposedly settled Poland's borders to the east. This was contentious enough and could not stand, particularly with the eruption of the Polish-Soviet War in the autumn. It was in the Baltic, though, that further problems for the Allies and the Poles emerged. Josef Pilsudski had been born to a Polish-Lithuanian family, and was enthusiastic to the point of spiritual about the idea that Lithuania must be incorporated in the new Polish state, like it had always been. Lloyd George questioned whether Lithuanian independence was warranted. The country was only the size of Wales, after all, and Woodrow Wilson was equally dubious about granting independence to any of the Baltic states. There was a thought that they would revert to Russia, and that once the white faction were victorious, these Baltic states would be taken back and the new flag of Republican Russia would be raised above them. Yet so little was known about the prospects of the region that the best the Allies could do was throw down concerned statements without forming much in the way of policy. As before, those on the ground were of the greatest influence on what transpired. The dance between Polish Commonwealth advocates and the Lithuanians themselves had added a further wrinkle. In February 1919, the first reports of the Fry Corps pouring into the Baltic states were received. Thus began one of the strangest episodes of the period, one which we will certainly cover in more detail later, but which you deserve a heads up about, simply because it was just so bizarre. Understanding that they lacked the firepower to protect the Baltic states from outside interference, and appreciating at the same time that the Bolsheviks were en route, the Allies instructed the German government to leave its soldiers in place in the Baltic once the armistice was signed in November. Answering the call were not merely, or even mostly, legitimate soldiers, but mostly the Fry Corps, who occupied portions of Estonia and Latvia over spring 1919, and then refused to budge. No one seems to have expected the arrival of these anti-communist street fighters, last seen battling with the German communists and Spartacists in Berlin in early January. Yet the arrival of the Fry Corps created a new problem all of its own. The Allies faced the same problems as before, the lack of proper force in the region. How then were they to get the Fry Corps to leave the Baltic, especially when these proud, frustrated, ambitious former soldiers and ruffians believed that the Baltic was their nation's right? The future of Poland and of the Baltic would be affected by these individuals who sought to preserve at least some portion of their fallen German Empire's legacy. It wasn't until late 1919, early 1920, that the Freikorps began their march back into Germany, after their forces had been defeated in sporadic battles with the locals. 
Incredibly, it wasn't until 1921 that the independence of Latvia and Estonia was recognised by the Allies. Lithuania was the more complicated case and still had its battles to fight with its former Polish partner. Poland would be shaped by war, and its incredible triumph in the war against the Soviets, spearheaded by an ingenious counter-attack, authorised and planned by Pilsudski, effectively won the war for Poland and shattered the Bolshevik plan of spreading revolution westwards. By the Treaty of Riga in March 1921, Poland was granted a great deal more than the Allies had planned to give her with the Curzon Line. Unfortunately for Poland, though, the victory was bittersweet. Poland had won many triumphs, but it had also created many enemies. The Germans were permanently resentful because of the corridor, the Lithuanians resented the loss of Vilnius, the Soviets were angry at the 150-mile strip of land which the Poles had seized from them in the war, and even the Czechs were mad at the Poles' monopoly over Techen. The interwar regime of Pilsudski didn't help matters, and by 1939, Hitler would have been able to find more than one ally willing to avenge themselves on Poland, but in fact, he found several, from the Soviets to the Hungarians. Poland sank beneath the map of Europe for the second time, haunted as so many other peoples were by the grand ambitions of the Paris Peace Conference which had since come crashing down. The Polish state which emerged from the Second World War was traumatised by its experiences and utterly dominated by Moscow, little better than a Soviet satellite. It had also changed notably in composition and location. To make up for their seizure of so much Polish land, Stalin moved Poland's borders 150 miles westwards, whereupon the Germans living in the regions were themselves evicted. The knock-on effect, in a country which had already been shorn of its Jews and millions of its citizens, would take some time to be fully absorbed and realised. Yet the spirit of resistance, encapsulated by the Solidarity Movement, demonstrated that Poles had not lost their spirit. In time, Solidarity was to engineer the collapse of the Soviet Union, serving as the first true wave in a series of tsunamis. The Poland, which then emerged in the early 1990s, was grey and severely damaged, not to mention dramatically altered by its 20th century traumas. One fact remained true, though, as true in 1991 as it had been in 1939, 1945 or 1795. Poland had persevered. Poland had not been erased, contrary to all efforts to make it so. Poland indeed, and yes this was deliberate, was not yet lost. So I realise this episode has been focused more on background detail than anything else, but with all we've learned today in mind, next time we'll focus on that trifecta of difficult Eastern European children, the Czechs, Yugoslavs and Romanians. If you thought the Poles were bad, then you, dear listener, ain't seen nothing yet. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.